Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, a hobby hotline from a couple of weeks ago. On with Danny Black and Logan Ward. We had a good time. Lots of different topics, lots of people calling in, chatting, commenting, and so we're dealing with that on the fly. Thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsey.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. We start off talking about Costco and the fact that I'm hard-pressed to see this as bad. They're probably not necessarily doing the fulfillment, but they're making cards more visible with some prominent glamour cards that you could buy. Now, why would you try to go to Costco online for that? I don't know that they would, but it's giving exposure. The problem is, last time we got lots of exposure for the hobby was kind of the junk wax era of the late 80s, early 90s, where cards were maybe not literally or figuratively everywhere, but it sure seemed that way. That's the challenge for fanatics and others uh, in the industry. If you want to grow the industry, we want cards to be more visible but if they're omnipresent, if they're everywhere, then that's not necessarily a good thing. Okay. But they could be more places than they used to be. Yes, that would be good. That would be something I would like. Then after that, we start talking about quality control issues, some of the problems that uh, the companies have had. Notably, Tops had something going on. And, and But Panini's had, you know, Upper Deck, everybody, you, you have two sets of quality control problems. One with the content, the preparation of the card, and you can make a mistake there. Those are heavy uh, content, uh, card savvy, sports savvy people usually doing that. So they're, they're very knowledgeable, but they could miss something. But the second part is the opposite. It's production people, packaging people, printing people who are just taking that art that was given from the company and then in the, in the, in the manufacturing plant, which is typically frequently, almost always separate, Pacific, noteworthy. One of the ones that didn't do that, as you remember from some of the episodes we had with Mike Kramer. So packaging is a whole nother deal. You don't necessarily want the person on the packaging line knowing that, oh, here comes a really good card. They just need to follow the insert ratios. And so they may not be aware that there's two one of ones uh, of, of, of the same player. There could be more than one one of one, but generally those are case hits or maybe even less frequent than a case. So that's what we talked about. Once a month, I come on. It's a lot of fun, but this is 10 minutes or so with Logan and Danny. So thanks, everybody. And here's the episode for your listening pleasure. If you go to Costco.com, you can actually buy a Mickey Mantle 51 Bowman rookie card. If it were in a regular Costco store where you had to go in and look at it and ask the person at the counter about what was perhaps under glass or under lock and key. I'm not sure about that. But if it's an online play, we'll see. It's just that once you go online, there's a lot of opportunity for comparison shopping. Costco is a strong brand, but they're not known for (laughs) high-end sports cards. (laughs) How do we even know this is Costco doing it? It's somebody doing it, and it's got Costco branding on it, but Costco may not be storing, fulfilling answering questions, doing anything about this other than using their name to draw eyeballs. Is this marketing as much as anything else? Is it powered by fanatics? Isn't everything. I'm wondering if Michael Rubin has bought Costco. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you think he has a membership? Do you think Michael Rubin's walking into Costco with his membership card? Well, if he were to walk in, he'd be walking in with an entourage. That dude gets around with his posse. 
Yeah, I, I walk around with my kids. He walks around with his bodyguards. It's very similar. Fanatics is now selling in retail stores that have never carried hobby products before, like lids, other stuff like that. Now you've got Costco, like you said, somebody's behind it. Costco is not going out there and sourcing the sports memorabilia. And maybe they are, maybe I'm wrong. But when we talk about 10 times in the hobby, is this getting in front of people because they sell other low-end sports products? Is this a loss leader or a marketing leader? It's an opportunity to see if this sticks in six months. If nobody buys anything, they won't do it. But they're going to get some awareness. I don't know if people are going to pull the trigger. I'd rather buy from somebody I know. On the other hand, if I'm buying from a large entity that stands behind the purchase, if something was wrong, you would think Costco would stand behind it. Much like the eBay guarantee. People are a little nervous about spending big bucks like a 51 mantle. That's not going to be cheap. No. In fact, you have to sign in to see the price. I think I read in the article, it's obviously in the six figures, but it's amazing. It, It made me think, Logan... Where else should be selling sports memorabilia and cards? You think a Waffle House or can do a autograph memorabilia? Or I was thinking more like either Chick Fil A or AutoZone. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Costco. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to one point one x the hobby. One point one x. But these are real items. It's free publicity. For the hobby. Yes. It's additional yeah. publicity, eyeballs we wouldn't otherwise get. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of sales from it. If it is, then that'd be truly amazing. Because I think it would be an impulse buy. And I don't think people go into Costco for impulse buys or go to their website for impulse buys for six-figure rookie cards. No, I, I think very rarely is that card an impulse buy. Back in the 90s, Sam's Club sold the 91 and 92 wax box. It's in the chunk era. Maybe they will get it right this time for Costco. I remember that. I used to be able to go and buy, I forget if it was a half pallet or a pallet of wax. But this is the other end of the market. <clears throat> yes. Or is it bringing people to the Costco website where eventually they will? That would be the Fanatics play. It's a curiosity play right now. So we'll, we'll see if it has legs. Basically, the problem in the early 90s was that there was a perception, it was actually a true perception, that cards were everywhere. Then people woke up and said, wait a minute, if cards are everywhere, then the cards I have in my garage maybe aren't as valuable as I think. And so you've got to be judicious about it. Again, this is a 51 Bowman mantle, but if the perception is that cards are everywhere, that's a dangerous path. We've been down before, so they just need to be smart about it. There's not a perception that 51 mantles are everywhere. (laughs) The 10X needs to be gradual, not instantaneously. It's been an interesting week for Tops and corporate manufacturing quality control, just pure accidents. Nobody wakes up in the mornings and thinks, hey, what mistake can I make today? It'll mess things up. So I think what hasn't been stressed enough is that There are two sets of quality control teams that need to have their act together. One is the card company in developing the card, what it's going to be. There's an element of quality control there and configuring the the product. And then there's the actual execution by the printer and and the distribution and the collating and and the assembly and all that stuff. That's a whole nother team. Now, maybe they talk to each other. The other problem is that the card company people have to be very knowledgeable about the hobby and the sport. The printing 
place, you almost don't want them to be knowledgeable about the sport and the players because they just need to treat it as a product that needs to be handled properly and they go through it. And so some things that happen like this are just, you've got two sets of quality control gauntlets and occasionally there's a mistake. Like I said, I hated making any mistake and I bet they hate making mistakes too, but Tops has tried in some creative ways to come up with solutions that I think people are saying is okay. That's a good way to resolve this. So there there have always been problems and I can't say there's never been an intentional error, uh, but I don't think these are. I just think still there's people that think that tops is messing up on purpose. On the other hand, what they could do better is they could say, here's what we're doing now to make sure this doesn't happen again. They are talking about, here's what we're going to do to rectify this situation. But here's the way we're rethinking our quality control to make sure this doesn't happen again. Secondly, they're not saying, and this person was fired (laughs) because they messed up. They're not saying that. They're just saying, oh, we made a mistake. And by not saying how the mistake happened, which might be a competitive thing, uh, they're leaving the door open for conspiracies that, hey, nobody got fired. Because if somebody was grossly negligent, they really shouldn't be working there. This is an industry that really requires a a real attention to detail, whether it's the printing, the whole thing. Cards are too expensive to have people that are not really extremely competent. I'm not hearing that people got fired or if you had a consultant that they're not going to be used anymore, or somebody that was doing the press checks fell asleep on the job. I'd I'd like to know an explanation, and here's what we're doing to make sure this doesn't happen again. Well, Dr. Beckett, your view on the top setting the floor on secondary market pricing with these bounties. I thought the bounties were set pretty high compared to the market value for the super fractures. When they had two of them, they put a bounty on one of them to try to get the one-on-ones back to one of ones. What's your thought on them? They have won the narrative by calling it a floor. (laughs) I think it's a ceiling. (laughs) I think this is the ceiling and it's aspirational and it makes people think, wow, I'm going to get it and I'm going to immediately cash it in. So they've created some enthusiasm for a product that probably will do better because of that. On the other hand, they've set aside escrowed a bunch of money to pay these bounties. But collectors being as they are, not all these are going to be redeemed. And so Tops is setting aside this money. My guess is that they're not going to have to pay out the full amount. And not only that, if there's time limits. The other thing it does is it defeats the notion that I'm going to buy these cases or boxes, set them aside, and I'm going to sell them for a lot more money in 10 years. Maybe not if there's a time limitation for this offer. So I think it's aspirational, and I think Tops is very interesting. To make it seem like a floor, I would be shocked if in 10 years, even one of these players out of the whole group is exceeding their bounty. If it is, it'll probably be one of the lower bounties that surprises everybody. What does Tops do do to the extra one-on-one buyback cards? Hopefully destroy it, not take it into the market. Can you imagine them doing anything else? No, not. Yes. Why would they destroy cards? Last time that happened, there was a barge in the Hudson with a bunch of 52 tops high numbers. I I think they're going to emboss them, crimp them, make some kind of overprint that signifies this is a historic card that we bought back. 
And whether it's uh, a redemption offer or a sweepstakes offer, they're nice cards. They've got to make them look definitively different than the other one, but they can do that. You're the Billy Ripken expert with the <laughs> 14 different variations there. Fleer got very creative in how to deal with that. They didn't destroy them all. They doubled down on it. I don't think it's a tinfoil hat. I believe they didn't know what was on the card, but the second they found out, they took full advantage of it. Back then, the only way to make more money was really just to produce more. Right. You had all these different variations they tried to put on to cover up. That created a lot of hype back then. I thought that card at the time generated as much buzz as almost any card I can remember. Dr. Beckett, I imagine the magazine spilled a lot of ink over the Bill Ripken card. How many articles did that spawn? What was that like for you during that period? It's not family friendly. We, we want a positive tone. And that was an embarrassment for our industry. When you're dealing with perception that it's a kid's hobby, which it's adults, it's men and boys, but disappointed in Fleer, letting that sneak by, disappointed in the Players Association, not catching it. But then after it's done, we had a lot of consternation of how to represent it in a family friendly way with our magazines without discussing it in ways that use bad words. Did you just put it like an error designation on it? And Rick Face. Rick Face. And that's where the Rick Face came from. That was you guys. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. Did the price change? Was that one of the more active ones? Do you remember in the time period? The confusion was what we were calling Rick Face was not Rick Face. <laughs> and some of the variations are replicable. Some of the notching and the cutting things. And the whiteout, the blackout, all that stuff. I don't think those were touched up. I think those were pack pulled. But I think at one point, maybe we had four variations. I don't think we certainly didn't have 14 listed in the magazine. We needed to cover it, but we weren't trying to draw so much attention to it. The hobby really needed to move on. Those people that are interested in that were going to go for it. And it was huge news for a couple months. The man 